I was reading this morning uh, at home as I was just in prayer and preparing, and I was in Psalm 119, and this text jumped out at me. Psalm 119.68 says, You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. I think that's a two-line summary of what we do on Sunday mornings. We celebrate the goodness of God to us and what he's given us through his son, Jesus Christ. We focus on his character and his blessings. And then we ask him to teach us. We look into the word with hearts that are open and expectant. So I'd like to invite you to bow your head and pray with me. And we will continue focusing on our good Lord and ask that he would teach us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for what we've sung, that you are a powerful God, the king over all kings, and you have, through the blood of the cross, made a way for sinners like us to be forgiven, to be cleansed of the sins of our past, to be set free from the power of sin over our lives today. And as we just sang, one day we will sin no more. As my good friend Will likes to say, one day there will be no more weeds to pull out of the garden. The war will be over, and we will enjoy resting for eternity in your grace, enjoying your glory. You are so good to give us all of this. So God, we come to you today thankful, wanting to praise you for your goodness, but also asking that you would teach us your statutes. We want to learn more of you. We want to understand what your will is for our life. So Lord, teach us, reveal your truth by your spirit so that you might receive glory in and through our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The kids can go ahead and be dismissed, those of you who are going downstairs for Children's Church. Looks like you guys are going down with uh, Steve and Wes today. Uh, The young kids who are too young to sit uh, in church are welcome to go with them. I'd like to invite the rest of you to turn to Colossians. We'll be continuing our study in Colossians. We're almost done. We're in Colossians chapter 4. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures today, I'd like to offer one to you. We have a couple copies in the back. Just raise your hand real quick if you don't have a Bible, and Dawson can slip one into your hands. So you can follow along with us, and we'd love for you to take that home. That's our gift to you. So just raise your hand real quick if you would like a copy of the scriptures for yourself. But we'll be in Colossians chapter 4 today as we near the end of this letter. The theme of Colossians, if you've been with us over the last several months, is the preeminence of Christ. Jesus is supreme in his person, who he is. He is over all. And Colossians also shows us that Jesus is sufficient in everything that he does. He is enough. And Paul tells us that we are complete in him. So what happens when a person embraces this truth? What happens when an individual believes this and orients their life around the supremacy of Christ? When a person does that, it changes their life. You literally, according to chapter 3, verse 10, put on a new self. You become a new person. So what happens when a group of people does this? What happens when not just one, but several or even many embrace the supremacy of Christ? Well, it has the potential to change the world. You see, God is at work reconciling the world to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 20. That's what God is doing in the world through his son. And he's using people to do it. He's using people like you and me, people who hold to Christ as the all-supreme and all-sufficient Savior. In Colossians chapter 4, we find several such people named. I'll read our text this morning. It's Colossians 4. We're going to start in verse 10. 
Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. You know, in our culture, I was reminded of this this week. In our culture, we usually don't place as much of an emphasis on personal greetings and farewells as they do in other cultures. We have some friends from Mexico here with us this morning. And if you go to visit Mexico, if you go visit Brian and Danielle... If you walk into a room and there's 12 people sitting there, you literally go around and make sure you shake each person's hand and personally greet everyone. Now, that doesn't always happen here. Sometimes you'll walk into maybe your small group or, or you know, a family gathering, and you might nod at someone across the room or wave, or maybe you just talk to someone later whenever you get to them. But we tend to not place as high of a priority on extending personal greetings. But in other cultures, it's very important And I want to remind us here that Paul, the author of this letter, has never been to Colossae. He's never been to this church, so he's never met most of these people. But he takes great care here in chapter 4 to demonstrate concern and appreciation for specific people. It's interesting, only the book of Romans has a longer list of names when it comes to the personal greetings that are often at the end of these kinds of letters. And that shows us that Paul loves this church. He cares deeply about the people in this church. And I think that's important that he doesn't just love it as an institution. He doesn't just love the brand, so to speak. He loves real people with real names and real stories. This is highly personal for him because he values these people as family, as we saw last week. He values them as co-laborers and as fellow members of the body of Christ. And he knows that each one of these people plays a key role in the ministry of the church. This section of Paul's letter to the Colossians serves as sort of like a group photo, if you will. A pile of people who have one thing in common, even though some of them have never even met face to face. They are all serving Christ. And God was doing great things through them. So as we look closely at this collection of names, I think we see here a portrait of the kind of people God uses. And that's the theme this morning, the kind of people that God uses. And I just want to draw out five different observations, the kind of people that God uses, that I think we see here in this text. First of all, God uses those who commit. He uses those who commit. And I think we see this in verses 10 and 11. He mentions Aristarchus and Mark and Jesus, whose surname is Justice. After introducing the two messengers who had delivered the letter in verses 7 through 9, that was Tychicus and Onesimus, Paul now begins to send greetings to the believers at Colossae from other believers that are currently in Rome, those who are with Paul as he's imprisoned there. 
And the first of these, in verse 10, is named Aristarchus. Now, if we go to the book of Acts, we learn that Aristarchus was a native of Thessalonica. And he had joined up with Paul and traveled with him on some of his missionary journeys. And here, Paul describes him, notice what it says, as his fellow prisoner. So why would Paul call him that? Why would he call him a fellow prisoner? Well, it's possible that, that like Paul, he had been arrested for gospel ministry and was under house arrest with him there in Rome. But it's more likely that, that this man, Aristarchus, had simply followed Paul as he was traveling and refused to leave him there alone. Paul, his partner, the one who, that he had sort of hitched his cart to in the ministry, was under house arrest. And so he had willingly given up his personal freedom in order to help him, in order to encourage him. He was by his side as a voluntary prisoner. And I think that says a lot about his personal commitment because, and you know this, if you think about your own life, personal freedom is something that's hard for us to give up, isn't it? It's hard for us to willingly, voluntarily limit our rights. We place a high value on individual liberty, our personal freedom, flexibility. Some of us are slow to commit because we don't want to hedge ourselves in or miss out on something else that might come up later. So to willingly set all of that aside for Aristarchus reveals a heart that is loyal. It reveals a singular priority to the mission. What about Mark? There's a second man listed here. Mark, we see, is the cousin of Barnabas. Well, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you'll know that this man, Mark, who's called John Mark in other places, has not always been so committed, has he? He was the cousin of Barnabas here. Barnabas was a key leader in the early church, and Barnabas had been among the very first of the believers to, to vouch for the faith of Paul. Paul used to persecute the church, so when he first converted, there was many people, as you can understand, that were very skeptical. But Barnabas took him under his wing. He vouched for him and committed to serve side by side with Paul on his first missionary journey. But Mark, his cousin, had been the cause of a falling out between Paul and Barnabas. You see, Barnabas had brought along his young cousin, John Mark, on that first journey. But when things got hard, and they did get hard, when things got hard, Mark had quit. He flaked out, and he went home. Later, when Barnabas wanted to bring him along on another trip and sort of give him a second chance, Acts 15 tells us that Paul refused, and there was a sharp disagreement between them. So they ended up parting ways. Barnabas took John Mark with him, and Paul took Silas. They went their separate ways. But as time went on, Barnabas's intuition that Mark could overcome this and that Mark would grow and that he wouldn't repeat his failures. Barnabas was right. Mark had been mentored by the Apostle Peter. And he was the one who actually penned the gospel that now bears his name, the gospel of Mark. And Mark's falling out with Paul was apparently restored. Because here in Colossians, instead of being a disappointment to Paul, notice what Paul says of this group of three, including Mark. He says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. He says, Mark is laboring side by side with me. He's faithful, and he has been a comfort, not a disappointment. John Mark's story is one of redemption, showing that failure need not be final. You know, for many of us, it's our own weaknesses and our own failures that often are the primary obstacle to keep us from serving God. 
but the story of Mark shows us that the grace of God is enough to overcome our failure, that it can empower us to persevere, it can empower us to grow, it can produce in us a strong commitment so that we become the kind of people that God uses. You know, things were hard now for Paul. He's in prison. There's great opposition, but he has partners who are with him. And Mark had become someone who had learned what it meant to be committed. God uses people like this, people like Aristarchus who set aside their freedom and people like Mark who have learned what it means to stay the course. What about the third man mentioned here? His name's Jesus, but he's not the Jesus who's the Messiah. He's Jesus who is also known by his Greek name, Justice. And if I were this man, I probably would have gone by Justice also. That's a hard name to live up to. But this is the only time that this man's mentioned in the New Testament. We really don't know um, much else about him. He's actually, I guess he's mentioned in Philemon as well. Um, But those are the only places he's mentioned. But he is mentioned here specifically as being a Jewish believer who labors alongside Paul. And this reveals a certain level of commitment as well. Because to join in with Paul meant, as a Jewish person, that he was believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that the old covenant, the old promises, the law, that it's all come true in Christ. The law has been fulfilled. The promises are here. And that meant a break from the old ways, which meant for Jewish believers being rejected by many in their culture who did not embrace Jesus as Messiah. It meant that this man, Justice, would have joined in with Paul in actually opposing the Jewish false teachers who were claiming that you had to keep the dietary restrictions, claiming that you had to follow all the feasts and the holy days, claiming that circumcision especially was necessary to gain salvation. That was a major controversy in the early church. Aristarchus, Mark, and this man, Justice, sided with Paul. And they said, the old things have passed away and everything's becoming new. The old covenant is fulfilled in Christ and a new covenant has come. God's doing a new thing, not just in Israel, but among all the nations of the earth. So he stepped across a very important line in the stand, in the sand, so he could stand with Paul. Shows a deep level of commitment. That was a great encouragement and a help to Paul because these three Jewish men had the advantage, like Paul, of having grown up in the Jewish culture. They knew the Old Testament inside and out. So they were able, like Paul, to help newly saved Gentile believers navigate the difficulties and avoid the pitfalls that were being presented by the Jewish heresy. No wonder Paul is so thankful for these three men, these three men who stood with him in his imprisonment, who stood with him for the gospel, who stood with him and labored alongside him in the ministry. As you can see, it's not just that these men were committed, because many people are committed. These these men were committed to the right thing. They were committed to Christ, committed to the gospel, and therefore committed to his servant, Paul. They were committed enough to take a stand, committed enough to dedicate their lives to the spread of the message, committed enough that Aristarchus would give up his personal freedom, committed enough so that Mark would work through his fears and failures and return to a place of faithful ministry. Committed enough that justice would stand against the Jewish false teachers, even though they were his countrymen in a foreign place. Too often that level of commitment does not describe many in the church. Although the biblical paradigm for discipleship is, according to Jesus, deny yourself, take up your cross, 
and follow me, we tend to have our own ideas of how we want our lives to look. Sometimes we approach Jesus as an important ingredient we want to add in to the recipe of our lives, of what we want our lives to be. You know, you sprinkle a little bit of Jesus in for extra flavor, and it helps keep you out of hell. But costly sacrifice, full commitment to Christ and his gospel and his people, that's asking too much, right? No. This is simply what it looks like to be surrendered to the lordship of Christ, to embrace him as supreme, as preeminent, not just over the universe, not just in the church, but even in my life. If you're not a believer here this morning, if you're investigating the claims of Christianity, you must understand that Christ does offer himself to you as savior. He promises that if you will trust him, he will cleanse you of sin and forgive you and make you new. But he also demands that we submit to him as our Lord. Jesus is not here to simply improve your life, but to rule over it. And it's so much better than anything that you might have to give up. The logic of the gospel is that in losing your life, you save it. Before you can commit to serving the Lord, the point I'm trying to make is that you must commit to him as Lord. If you're not a believer here today, God doesn't want you to do things for him. He simply wants you to bow the knee to Christ, to confess him as your Lord and Savior. Receive his forgiveness and pledge yourself to take up your cross and follow him. Then he will not only save you, but he will use you greatly for his glory, just like he used these men. If you're a believer here this morning, let me ask you. Here's a thoughtful question that, that I was reading this week. If every believer was committed as you are to the church, how well would your church function? It's a convicting thought. If every believer were as committed as you are to the spread of the gospel, would people get saved? Would lost people hear the good news? Or would this, this great mission that God is accomplishing in the world start grinding its gears and slow down to a crawl? You see, God uses people who are committed Christ is supreme. He is preeminent, and therefore he deserves our full devotion. So we must be committed to Christ and his gospel and his people. These are the kind of people that God uses, and we see a wonderful example of that in these three men. But secondly, we learn this morning that God not only uses those who are committed, but he uses those who labor. Look in verse 12 and 13. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Paul sends greetings from someone now that, the, that this church actually knew very well. He was the one who had planted the church at Colossae. He was from their city. Paul says he's one of you. He's one of their own. And Paul's already commended this man for his faithful ministry back in chapter 1, verses 7 through 8, because Epaphras had traveled to Rome and visited Paul, and he was the one who had told Paul about everything that was going on in the Colossian church, the good news of what God was doing, the people who were saved, how they were growing, how the gospel's bearing fruit, but also his concerns, his concerns about the false teaching that was starting to crop up. And now Paul describes the heart of this man for the people in his church. He is one who labors for them in prayer. He says, always struggling on your behalf. 
If you've ever tried it, then you know that prayer is hard work. And this man has given himself to the task. And notice what he prays for. He prays for their spiritual maturity, that they would be grounded. He's burdened for their growth and their spiritual health. You can sort of imagine, if you will, go back with me in time and picture Epaphras arriving in Rome, and he's meeting with Paul. He wants to know how Paul is doing, but before long, as Paul asks, why are you here, Epaphras? He starts to share and unload his concern for the Colossian believers. And he tells Paul about the false ideas that are circulating around, that there's these worldly philosophies that are creeping into the church. They're taking people captive. There's these false ideas that are minimizing Christ and placing the emphasis on keeping these holy days and on asceticism and this mystical connection with angels and that Jesus is getting pushed to the sideline. He pours out his heart sharing his concern for ways the church needs to grow. And this leads Paul to write this letter. And as Paul writes in one room, you can almost imagine Epaphras in the next room praying, praying for these people. And it may be that the Holy Spirit's inspiration of this letter, the book of Colossians, was a direct answer to the prayers of Epaphras. You can imagine him praying, Oh God, bring them to maturity. Help these people that I love to withstand the false teachers. Give them confidence, Jesus, that you are supreme and that your work is sufficient, that they are made whole, they are complete in you. And so as God hears the prayers of Epaphras, he breathes his word through Paul so that this letter would be sent, so that the people would be strengthened and established and protected and grounded, so that Christ would be exalted And the prayers of this man, Epaphras, for that church would be answered. Paul tells the Colossians, this man, Epaphras, has worked hard for them and for others as well. God used this man in the establishment of that church. He uses those who labor. Some of you maybe can identify with Epaphras. Many of you today have borne the burdens of others. You care. You've invested, you've witnessed, you've counseled, you've confronted, you've encouraged, you've forgiven, you've instructed, and it's hard. It can be wearying. If ministry feels like hard work to you, then I would say don't worry. It's supposed to be hard. And if it's not, you're probably not doing it correctly. I love how Paul describes his own ministry many times in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 15, he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. In Philippians 2, 17, he says, that he, he says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In Galatians 4, 19, he says, my little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Ministry is hard work. There's labor involved. But here's the good news. God works in and through our labors. And it's in our weakness, when you feel most spent, most poured out, that God's power is made known. It's in and through our labors that people are brought into contact with the word of God that they become the subject of our prayers. And that's when God works. He uses those who labor. He uses those who labor. This kind of labor is not something to be avoided. And it's not something that's just for the pastors of your church. 
It's a privilege that's been granted to all who know Christ, that we labor in doing the work of the ministry. So God uses those who are committed. God uses those who labor like Epaphras. Third, God uses those who endure. In this, I find this point in the contrast between two people, Mark, whom we've already mentioned, and a man named Demas. Demas. He says in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does this man, Demas. Colossians chapter 4 is not the only time that we find Mark and Demas mentioned together. At the end of Paul's life, Paul wrote to a young man named Timothy. 2 Timothy 4 verse 9, he says this, he's an old man, he's preparing to die, he's in prison in Rome. He says, do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. What do we see when we look at Mark and Demas side by side? Mark was someone who stumbled early but finished strong. Demas, on the other hand, was one who started off strong but who stumbled in the end. This is a tragic tale, a warning of sorts. Like Judas, Demas proved in the end to fall away and not be authentic and faithful. In Luke 9, 62, Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The reality is there will always be those in the church who seem to start off fast out of the gate, but who fall away. The Apostle John explains to us in his letter, 1 John, that this is evidence that they never truly were born again. He says they went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that all are not of us. Paul would regretfully have to tell Timothy later that Demas loved the world. He was in love with the things of the world, the comfort that the world offers, the reward and the pleasure of the world. And so he turned his back on Paul and on Christ and on the ministry. Friends, it happened to Jesus. Judas turned away. It happened to Paul. Demas loved the world. And it may happen to us. This is not a new phenomenon. It may happen in your family. It may happen in this church. So it's therefore crucial that we heed the exhortation in Hebrews chapter 12 to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You see, God uses those who endure, who persevere to the end. So consider in your life when things get hard, when doubts arise, when suffering washes over you, when temptation seems at its strongest, God is greatly glorified when you endure. Sometimes simply holding on when it feels like that's all you can do is the thing that most pleases God and is most necessary in that moment. How do we do this? How can we endure? How do we make sure that our story ends up like Mark? perhaps faltering along the way, but making it to the finish line instead of like Demas. I think Paul gives wise counsel to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16. He says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
If we want to make it to the end, if we want to run the race with endurance and finish strong, we have to guard our own hearts, our own personal character, our integrity, our holiness, our purity. And we also need to take great care in guarding the truth, biblical doctrine, the message of Christ and his gospel. If we allow sin and hypocrisy to grow in our own hearts, in our own lives, we will not endure Likewise, if we allow error to creep in and the gospel to be corrupted and Christ to be minimized and we allow our eyes to be taken off of him and get placed on all these other things, then we will not be able to endure. We're setting ourselves up for failure. So we must be on guard. We must be watchful. We must be careful. But we need more than simply to be alert. Ultimately, if you and I are going to endure We need the power that God supplies. And this is what Paul had prayed for them. Flip back over to chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 11. Remember what Paul had prayed for them? He says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father. It takes power to endure. And that power comes from God. And it's an answer to prayer. And it's given to those who depend on him and look to him. And his power is enough. His might is glorious. It's greater than whatever obstacle, whatever suffering, whatever temptation we may face. And it produces in us endurance. We read often at the conclusion of our service the blessing from Jude, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's to Christ that we look in worship and dependence and thanks. He is able. So when you feel weakest and you fear falling away, we look to Christ and know that he is able to preserve us and keep us until the end. So to endure means believing in this truth depending on this grace, and then giving ourselves to faithfully running the race. And when we do that, when we persevere as we endure, we become the kind of people that God uses. He uses those who endure. Moving on, fourthly, God also uses those who offer their resources. See this in verses 14 and 15. There's the reference to Luke in verse 14, the beloved physician. And then in verse 15, he says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Two names mentioned here I want to draw our attention to, Luke and Nympha, both Gentiles. These are not Jewish believers, but they were key contributors to the establishment of the early church in different ways. Luke here is the beloved physician. And if you know anything about doctors, you know that as as far as supply and demand goes, they're never short of work. There's always work to be done if you're a doctor. Um, But Luke had left his livelihood at home and chosen to offer his gifts and his talents to the Lord. He traveled with Paul. And it's not hard to imagine him as he ministers to Paul, perhaps caring for Paul's wounds when he was beaten, as he often was, tending to him. When he was sick, as Paul tells us, he suffered in his ministry, nursing his injuries, and by doing so, enabling Paul to continue doing the work God had called him to do. In addition, as we were reminded this morning in our adult Bible class, Luke used his academic skills to research and to write. He composed both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. 
And Greek scholars, as they look at, at, at Luke's writings, they marvel at the quality of the prose, at the literary beauty of Luke's Greek writings. It outshines any Greek novel that's out there. This was a man who simply offered what he had to the Lord, whether it was his, his expertise as a doctor, whether it was his personal energies in serving alongside Paul, or whether it was his time to research and to write for Theophilus and, and by extension, the church. Luke simply offered what he had to God. He was perhaps not a preacher or a theologian to the same degree that Paul was, but he offered what he had to God, and God used him greatly. God used him greatly. Paul also sends greetings to a woman named Nympha and the church in her house. This is likely referring to a church not in Colossae, but in Laodicea, a nearby city, and Paul wanted this letter to be read there as well. And evidently, this woman, Nympha, was a woman of means. She had a home, a home that was substantial enough <clears throat> to house not only her family, but also to serve as a gathering place for a growing young church. In those days, the churches did not have a building. So they either met in public spaces or they gathered in homes. Not only did Nympha gladly embrace the chance to show hospitality in, in doing this, Gladly bearing the burden of wear and tear in her home. As many of you know, if you host a small group or if you have people from our church over, you know that sometimes things get tracked into the house, sometimes stuff gets broken, and that's all part of the blessing of hosting. So there's that that she's joyfully willing to do. But even more than that, you have to understand that in hosting the church in her house, this woman was taking on the risk of being publicly associated with the church. If and when persecution arose, it would be known that she was someone who harbored these new adherents to the faith. But she did so gladly. And so Paul singles her out for greeting and recognition because he knew what she was doing and valued it. She offered to God what she had, and God used her. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're old or young, whether you're a little boy or a little girl, no matter who you are, we all have different things to offer to God. And God can use you, whatever it is that you have to offer. You know, sometimes what we have to offer God doesn't feel very impressive, does it? Sometimes it feels like all you have is maybe a couple loaves and a few fish. But here's the amazing reality. It's not about how impressive your resources are. It's about how impressive the God is who uses your resources to accomplish his purposes for his glory. He takes our little offerings and uses them to do great things. And it's not like it all depends on you and what you offer because you are part of a body. You're part of a family where each person among us, we all bring our offerings and our gifts and our resources. And the whole of what is given, therefore, to God is so much greater than simply the sum of its parts. In this simple greeting from Paul at the end of this book, it's evident that the apostle values the various contributions that each one has made. He knows that God uses people like this. He knows that he hasn't built this spreading church, that he's not the one who's ultimately responsible for the advance of the gospel. He knows he's part of something bigger. And God has used each person to do their part. God uses those who offer their resources. And then finally, God uses those who embrace their calling. He uses those who embrace their calling. Verse 17, he says, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry you have received in the Lord. 
In the little letter of Philemon, Paul says Archippus also hosts a church in his house, but he's here in Colossae. And Paul there calls him a fellow soldier. Nothing else is known about this man, but what is clear is that God had a special task for him. God had a calling for him. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry, Paul says, that you have received in the Lord. So this ministry is not one that Archippus has invented. He's not one of those self-appointed leaders who builds himself a website and then gets some good marketing material and sets himself up to be in a position of power and authority. No, it was something he had received. It was God's calling upon him. And Paul reminds him and exhorts him, admonishes him as an apostle that he is to embrace it and fulfill it. And I think this word of exhortation can really be extended to all of us. As we've already noticed, each of us has our own unique part to play in the ministry of the gospel. Each of us has our own unique opportunities, our own unique gifts. I love what Paul says in Romans 12, verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You have a gift, and it's meant to be used. He says, if prophecy in proportion, proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, whatever your gift is, it is to be employed, it is to be used. Peter says the same thing, 1 Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Friends, you and I are to embrace our calling, to fulfill the ministry that God has given us. There is a sense of duty here, a holy, joyful duty. As a soldier receives marching orders, so too we are a people who are under command, under an authority. We serve Christ. He is supreme. He is, he is preeminent over all things. And we submit to him. And there's a great joy and a privilege in this. What God has called us to is the ministry of the gospel. We get to be part of the church. We get to experience the grace of participation. And what that means is that we stand in a position to one day receive the reward that is coming for those who labor in this ministry. Paul looked forward to that reward. If I can reference 2 Timothy 4 again, he tells Timothy in verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, Paul says, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. See, there is a reward coming for those who embrace their calling, who fulfill their ministry. So we, like Archippus, must set our eyes on this reward and embrace our calling right now and fulfill the responsibilities that God has given us in the church. As we see the kind of people that God has used in the past, I think it should stimulate our thinking. And I think it should inform us as to what kind of people we must be in the present. Ultimately, it doesn't depend on us. It's God who's at work. And he'll accomplish his will one way or another, with or without us. But we get the gracious privilege of participation. 
And there is no greater joy than being a conduit of God's grace. No greater joy than seeing that God can use me and my little gifts and my small resources to impact people's lives for eternity, to display the supremacy and the glory of Christ. Have you ever experienced that? Seriously, have you ever experienced that? Because if you have, you know the thrill and the joy and the satisfaction. And in a good way, it's addictive. You don't want to live for anything else. You don't want to waste your life stacking up material resources and creating your own little kingdom on this earth when it's only going to wash away with the tide. Friends, this is what we get the privilege of participating in. So you may not be the most gifted. You may not be the smartest. You may not have the most dynamic personality. You may not be the most impressive speaker. You may not have vast resources, humanly speaking, that others have. But by God's grace and through the power that his spirit supplies, you can be committed and God will use that. You can work hard and labor for Christ and God will use that. You can endure and persevere and hold on like a pit bull to the truth of the gospel and God will use that. You can embrace your calling and fulfill your responsibility and perform your God-given duty in the church and God will use that. That's what Paul longed to see in this church. It's what I pray for you. May God grow this church for his glory, using us as his instruments in his hands to accomplish all of his purposes. Will you pray for that as well and give yourself to that? God in heaven, as we step back and just reflect on this letter written from a man in Rome to believers in Colossae, we're encouraged to see that you use normal people to do extraordinary things, to build your church so that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Lord, we praise you for what you've done throughout history, what you did in the first century, what you did as the church grew in those early years, what you did in preserving your church through the dark ages and in awakening it to the gospel through the Reformation and preserving it today and building it today. God, you are at work and you are faithful doing all that you have determined to do. But Lord, we want to be faithful to be obedient. We want to be useful. And we know that the things that we're involved in may at times, from the world's perspective, seem small and insignificant. But Lord, we offer you what we have. We offer you all that we are because we believe that Christ is supreme and he must be in all things preeminent. And we want the world to know that it's through your son, Jesus Christ, Father, that you are reconciling the world to yourself, that you're making sinners like us into new creatures redeeming us, saving us, and employing us in the work of the ministry. God, I thank you for the many in this body who have been so committed, who have labored hard, who have endured great adversity, who have used their gifts and offered their resources. I thank you, Lord, for the many different names that if we were to write a letter about this church, people who should be greeted and recognized, I thank you for that. And I pray that you would instill within them a desire to continue, to not grow weary in well-doing, and Lord, for those who may be sitting on the sideline, I pray that you would draw them into this task, equip them, empower them, give them a singular focus to serve Christ and live for his glory. And Lord, for some who may be sitting here thinking that if Christianity requires giving their whole life to Christ, they're not sure if that's really what they want to do. I pray that you would help them to realize that it is only in losing their lives that they can save it. And that even if they gain the whole world, but they lose their soul, 
to tragic waste. I pray that you'd give them eyes of faith to see the glory and the worth of Christ, that they would surrender to him and trust him to forgive their sins, that they would submit to him as their Lord and allow him to change them and use them for your glory. We pray all this, Jesus, in your high and supreme and mighty name. Amen.